Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? Jason Jimenez here. So glad to be with you here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Thank you for tuning in, listening, whether you're in your car, working out, having the Bible open on your desk, or listening it somewhere around the world. I just want you to know that we pray for our listeners. We receive so many blessings, so many emails from you. If you've never contacted us, if you have a prayer request, if you have a question, a theological one, or something that perhaps I've covered in the previous podcasts, and you have our study notes, you go to standstrongministries.org, click on podcast. All the information's there. We have so many different feeds going on out there, and, and we're just excited to see the continual growth because bottom line is we come together, my friend, so we can study the Word of God. And as the podcast name is, that when we study God's Word, when we encounter our Savior, that we are standing strong in our faith because we're grounded in the Word of God. That's why we are committed to continue to put out this content to help you grow, not just in your understanding, but you grow in intimacy. And as you're grounded and rooted in Christ, the Bible says, that you take that from Colossians chapter two and you apply it to first Peter chapter three, verse 15, that when people give you a challenge an objection to Christianity, when they ask you questions about your faith, you're able to respond in meekness and in truth. And so now here on podcast 98, we continue our study on Thursday night. Now in the previous podcast 96 and 97, remember we were uncovering what the meaning of Passover is. In the last podcast, in podcast 97, so if you missed that, you can go to standstrongministries.org, click on podcast or whatever feed that you get your podcast on, but check that out because where we left off was there was a dispute that broke out among the disciples at the mill itself. That puts things in perspective. And remember, Jesus had to respond and deal with this hierarchy kind of mentality that the disciples continue to have while they served under Jesus, right? As they followed their master, their rabbi. And so they were not interested in serving one another. They were interested in the other serving them. And so Jesus rebuked that. And not only did he rebuke it in word, but he demonstrates by washing their feet. And that's important because now where we're at here on today's podcast is the continuation Thursday night of what happens and Jesus now, after washing the disciples' feet, and one of the people that Jesus washed his feet was Judas. And we know that same night, Judas was going to leave Jesus and the rest of them because he was hired to betray Jesus. Now, this is recorded in all of the Gospels, in Matthew 26, 21 through 25, Mark 14, 18 through 21, Luke 22, 21 through 23, and John 13, 21 through 30. So what I've done is, again, I've taken all four accounts and I've meshed it into one narrative as always. That way it gives us a proper perspective. So here in Matthew 26, verse 21, the first part of the verse, it says, and as they were eating, in Mark 14, verse 18, it says they were reclining at table. 
And then we look at John 13, beginning in verse 21, where it says, after saying these things, so we go back to what we mentioned before, Jesus had to rebuke the disciples. Jesus washes their feet. It says here now that Jesus was troubled. That means he was sorrowful. He was grieved. He was injured in his spirit. And he testifies to the disciples. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, again, put this in perspective. We're told that they're reclining at table. So they're very intimately involved in each other. They have this meal before them, recognizing the bondage of their ancestors and how God delivered them. Of course, Jesus was going to institute the Lord's Supper in a minute. And then, of course, he was going to be betrayed, crucified. And then on the third day, he would rise from the dead, fulfilling this actual meal. So he just washes their feet. The disciples are humbled. They're probably stunned. They feel humiliated. And then Jesus gets very emotional. And he starts expressing to them now that one of you here is going to betray me. And it says in Mark 14, verse 18, one who is eating with me in verse 22 of John 13, the disciples, when Jesus said this, looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Now, two things I want to draw your attention to. Number one was you're reclining at a table celebrating the Passover. This was a very intimate process in that culture. When you have people around that table, these are people that you not just can count on, but these, this is family. These are people that you do life together, that you trust implicitly. But not only that, but Jesus also says this in front of his own disciples. So not only was it a shameful act to betray trust of a uh, loved one, but could you imagine how shameful it would be for a disciple to betray his own rabbi or teacher? So this reflected because it wasn't just of their conduct, but this reflected poorly on the rabbi or the teacher. And Jesus had just showed great humiliation and love by washing their feet. And yet there's going to be someone amongst them who is still going to betray him. Mark 14, verse 19, after Jesus says this, they began to be sorrowful themselves, but it's a different sorrowfulness because remember Jesus was troubled. He's grieved. He's injured in his spirit. This word in the Greek for sorrowful for the disciples was they felt insulted. They were hurt. So they're kind of getting defensive here. And they say to him one after another, is it I? So the disciples were literally saying this to Jesus, surely it can't be me. So notice how defensive they're getting. Luke 22, verse 23, and they begin to question one another. So now we're right back at it. Remember, just a few minutes before this, they're feuding over who the greatest is. And now you can imagine kind of their assumptions here or certain perspectives they have of one another, you know, how they interpret each other. They're probably inserting reasons why it's the other person and not themselves. So they're questioning among one another, which one of them it could be who was going to do this. So Jesus... He doesn't immediately respond to this situation, which forces some of this introspection among the disciples. And undoubtedly, it was giving a lot of turmoil and again, creating more of an argument around the table. So we oftentimes we see, you know, a picture of the Passover meal with Jesus and the disciples. It looks very peaceful. Well, as we've been going through this study, we realize that it wasn't. So it's no wonder that the disciples at this point were pausing to consider their own heart, but also looking at the quote unquote heart of the person that they're reclining a meal with. 
and looking at this type of betrayal, this type of meaning, and, and not just stunned, but recognizing that, well, yeah, maybe it could be Thomas because of this, and maybe it could be Thaddeus because of this, and maybe it could be John because of this. But this is a point in the story where we recognize a prophetic meaning that's found in Psalm 41, verse 9, where it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his hill against me. So Jesus, when he says this, he's referring back, I believe, to this particular psalm. Notice here in John 13, verses 23 and 25, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? So it's interesting here because as they're there, you know, there's a level of introspection among the disciples, certainly, but they're questioning one another and they're calling each other out. Peter motions to, to uh, John here, and he's trying to get John uh, to, to convince Jesus to tell the rest of them because they're freaking out. You, 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 are, you know, if you're that kind of person when someone says, hey, and you get a second, I need to tell you something. And you're like, no, just tell me now. Like, well, no, when you have a minute, no, because you're so worried, you don't know what it is and it starts bothering you. And you're like, I'd rather you just tell me now, let's get it over with than delaying the whole thing, right? And that's the situation here. Peter, and again, he was a guy who's a straight shooter. He's like, look, you're not saying anything. Maybe I'm gonna get John to convince Jesus to just tell us who it is so we don't just keep sitting around bickering about it. So he takes it upon himself. Again, this is something that we see regularly with Peter. He takes it upon himself. And again, I'm not saying this in a bad way. I think a lot of times commentators and pastors tend to rip on Peter. I'm not saying this is a a wrong approach to the situation, but Peter just nonetheless, he takes it upon himself to get to the bottom line, get to the point of who's going to betray Jesus. And he does this by alerting John who's next to Jesus. And now this is a place of honor for John. This shows that, again, Peter looks to John as kind of an anchor. It's interesting later in the podcast down the road, we're going to talk about us, Peter and John running to the empty tomb. So we know this phrase here, one of his disciples. It's just funny how John doesn't mention himself directly, but he mentions himself nonetheless in the text, right? And of course, he'll later mention himself at the cross in John 19, verses 26 through 27. He mentions himself at the empty tomb in John chapter 20, verses 2 through 9. He also mentions himself when Jesus is resurrected and he's at the Sea of Tiberias in John 21, verses 20 through 23. And of course, he mentions himself again at the end of the gospel in chapter 21, verse 24. And one of the reasons I believe that John doesn't mention himself directly is because he is not the main character and he knows it. The, the Christiology that we see expressed beautifully in John is the reason why he wants Jesus, if you will, to be the centerpiece. But he mentions himself because it's important, especially at this point, the role that he played along the way. Now we're told here in verse 26 of John 13 that Jesus responds. So in a way, it kind of works. Peter gets John to talk to Jesus and Jesus now responds. He says, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Okay, so I need to provide a little context so we can understand because I remember years ago when I was reading this, I'm looking at thinking, it's that obvious. They asked the question of Jesus, who's going to betray you? And he says here, 
in verse 26, the person that I give this morsel of bread when after I dip it, that's going to be the person who's going to betray me. And he hands it immediately to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So thinking, what on earth is going on here? Why didn't the disciples pick up on that? Well, again, let me give you some context. In this setting of Pascal, a Passover meal, the person who had the highest status at the meal, he would dip first. So the host would then pass it to the guest of honor as a mark of true friendship. Now, remember, there are segments, if you will, parts to the meal. It wasn't just like you pray and you just have a feast and you remember Passover. There are progressions during the night. And so we're at this next phase now where the host would pass to the guests of honor as a, as a mark of true friendship. And he, when he gives Judas this morsel of bread from the start, it was carrying two meanings. First, it was a sign of love that Jesus had for Judas. And second, guess what? When Jesus does this act, when he takes the morsel of bread and he dips it, guess who's doing it at the same time with the unleavened bread? Judas is. We're told that in Mark chapter 14, verse 20. So the second meaning here that the disciples could have taken away was when Jesus was doing it, Judas was doing it because he was saying, I'm better than you, that he is the guest of honor. So therefore, this act alone could explain why the disciples didn't truly identify Judas as the traitor. It was confusing to them. Now, a point of clarification, because oftentimes I've had some conversations with people along the way. At this point in time, when Jesus was doing this, he was not officially institutionalizing communion. What Jesus was doing here was he was dipping some unleavened bread into the bitter herbs made of vinegar and water, and he would give thanks to God for the fruits of the earth, and then he handed the portion to the guests. One commentary writes, quote, the unleavened bread was then distributed and the Pascal lamb placed on the table in front of the head of the family. So now the centerpiece, which is going to be the lamb, later on Jesus, of course, is going to do the institutionalization of communion. So now we jump back to Matthew 26, verse 25, where it says, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, and he says, You have said so. So Judas acts as though it couldn't be him. This is an indication that Judas was second-guessing his betrayal plot. I believe he was merely playing dumb. His heart was so filled with deception that he speaks up after he dips with Jesus the unleavened bread. And it's interesting to think about it, my friend. Remember, this is not communion yet. But he takes unleavened bread, what it represents, not being defiled. And yet this man is filled with deception. And so he uses this as a way to draw the attention away from him so that the disciples cannot pinpoint that it's Judas. So then we look back in John chapter 13, verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan enters. It literally means to move in, to come inside into him. And in response to this, Jesus calls out this deceptiveness and tells him to depart, to do what he's going to deliberately do because of his fallenness, because of his sin. In verse 28, now one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was nighttime. So here, um, 
it's important to kind of point out a couple of things. One is that it was very common during the Passover meal for some families to give to the poor. So during the time, they would take a portion of something and they would go out there and distribute it into, into the streets. So that's probably why the disciples didn't, again, put two to two together because Jesus was telling supposedly Judas to go do that. So they had no clue that one, Satan was present and, and two, that he enters one of their buddies, one of the disciples of Jesus, and that this possession was going to lead to the betrayal of the Son of God. And one has to wonder, you know, how, where do you go from, from here? You know, what do you say next when Jesus knows in his heart what Judas is about to do? And I love this because, and this is important, this kind of gives us a picture. At this stage now, we have the true followers of Jesus. And it's at this point now, he's going to do two things. One, He's going to institute a new commandment of love in John 13, verses 31 through 35. And then, of course, afterwards, he's going to partake in communion with his disciples. In verse 31 of John chapter 13, it says, When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. So immediately following Judas's departure from the Passover meal, Jesus here expresses that everything now is set in motion. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be crucified on the cross for your sins. That this chasm, if you will, this separation between man and God is going to be reunited. It's going to be amended. I'm going to be the second Adam. I'm going to draw all men to myself. And even though I'm going to be betrayed and tortured, I'm going to be glorified. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 12, verse 23, remember, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he reminds him here in verse 31. He also says in verse 32, if God is glorified in him, that is in Jesus himself, the Son of Man, the Son of God, God will also glorify him in himself. In the Greek, what Jesus is saying here is that his glory will be contained. It will be identified in the splendor and in the majesty of his heavenly father. And he says, and he will be glorified at once. So in these two verses, verses 31 and 32, Jesus uses the word glorified or glorify five times. And you think Judas just betrayed him. He's troublesome. He's sorrowful. The disciples have been debating, arguing amongst each other. Je Jesus just saw Judas possessed by Satan and leave to go to his enemies. And yet he's speaking about being glorified. Isn't that amazing? In verse 33, then he looks to his disciples and here he refers to them as little children. This was a common expression that was used to students. And it certainly was one where John would later in his ministry refer to his people as little children. This is something that he learned from his rabbi, from Jesus himself. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the, to, to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus announces once again that he will soon ascend back to heaven. This is something that he mentions over and over again. On several different occasions, John 7, verses 33 through 36, John 8, verse 21, John 12, verse 8, John 12, verse 35, Jesus has repeatedly told his disciples this. And then he tells in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. 
So Jesus adds, just as I loved you to guess what? A passage in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where it says, you shall love your neighbor. And then he adds, just as I have loved you. So he's referring it as a new commandment because this love will be the result of his sacrifice on the cross for the sins of the world. It will offer newness of life and cause the disciples to launch the church in the power of the Holy Spirit. So yes, they're living out the scriptures. They're living out love for their neighbor. This is something that Jesus has told them to in the Sermon on the Mount. But notice, just as I have loved you, that is the kind of love that I'm going to give you that you're going to demonstrate to other people and it's going to change your life. In verse 35, by this, he says, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As a Jew, you are a Jew, right? You are a follower of God. You are called by God. You are a from the seed of Abraham. And so as you live out the, the scriptures, as you follow the feasts, as you sit under a rabbi, as you go to synagogue, as you read from the scriptures and you anticipate the coming Messiah, you are a Jew. But Jesus is saying to them more than that, people will know that you are my disciples, not because you follow the scriptures per se, not because you go to synagogue, not because you go to the temple and offer sacrifice. It's because you have love for one another. A great indicator of a disciple of Christ is a love that they will show others. Jesus will provide now a great instruction of this kind of love in John chapter 14, chapter 15, and chapter 16. That sets us up as we go next podcast into the institution of the Lord's Supper, but then we start diving into the beautiful teaching that Jesus instructs his disciples in John 14 through 16. And, and my friends, you know, it would be a disservice to you if I just ended this podcast and didn't challenge you and my own heart of looking at any type of betrayal that we have. Now, of course, if you have an unbelief, you're not a true disciple of, of Jesus. We have doubts. We have our concerns. We have our struggles. But to be a true disciple of Christ, you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You receive his unconditional love and forgiveness. And as a disciple of Christ, we are to demonstrate that kind of love to other people. Jesus said that explicitly. There's no denying it. People will know if you are my disciple for the love that you have for one another. And I have to tell you, yes, I will say by the power of the Holy Spirit that I have learned to love people at times when I had no ability myself or no desire to want to do that. And by God's grace, I'm so thankful. But I got to tell you, it is a constant challenge for me. And maybe it is for you as well. I don't know. But I just want you to be challenged to look at your heart Look at Judas. Look at the setting here with the disciples. Look at how Jesus responded to them. Don't we have an amazing Savior? So don't neglect that. As we anticipate the coming of Christ, I pray that together, you and I, not just the community of listeners here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast, but that we as the body of Christ would love one another. We would not live in hypocrisy. We would not rival against one another. 
but that we would have peace, that we would honor one another, we would forgive one another, that we would show this kind of love that Christ has shown us. I love you, my friends. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep standing strong, my friends. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the Word of God.